For those of you who are watching live, good morning. For everybody else, thank you for making us part of your day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's been a rough week with the restrictions coming down from the Alberta government about social gatherings, about us closing down for Sundays in December at our church and for all the other things that impact so many of us. But may we be reminded over and over again that Christmas cannot be canceled. And God, as we listen to your word this morning, however we're listening to it, please speak to us, we pray. By the power of your Holy Spirit, impact our minds, our hearts, our heads, our hands, so that you would be glorified, that my words would fall down, and that you would impact each listener the way you want to today. We pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Listen closely as there's going to be a question at the end. Jerry was driving through the roughest part of town. Two days ago, some kids had taken a bat and smashed out the headlights of his car. There were no street lamps on because kids would take slingshots and shoot them out. Store owners were a little bit afraid that people would break into their stores at night so they would roll down shutters so there was no light from that. On top of that, it was a new moon in the lunar cycle. In front of Jerry, a black man wearing a black coat, a black trench, pant, <laughs> trench coat, and black pants walked in front of him, and yet Jerry still managed to stop on time. How did he do it? No headlights, no street lamps, nothing from the stores, new moon. For the savvy listeners, it was the middle of the day. You can't cancel light. Right now, we're working through a sermon series called You Can't Cancel Christmas. And last week, Pastor Mel talked about how we can't cancel God's plan. If you didn't have an opportunity to listen to it, I encourage you to check it out. It was excellent. If you missed it, what he talked about, or one of the things he talked about, was Herod trying to cancel God's plan. And we read in Matthew chapter 2, 16, when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under. Herod was paranoid. He also killed his favorite wife, two or three of his kids, and several of his close associates, believing that all of these people were coming for the throne, yet God's plan was still accomplished. Today we're going to look at something else that cannot be canceled. It's God's light. So if you have your Bibles with you, whether in hardback or whether on your devices, I invite you to open them up to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. As you're opening your devices there, let's spend a few minutes setting the scene to understand why it's so important to look at the depth of darkness before we get to the good news of the light. From the opening verse of Scripture, we have a cosmic conflict that's taking place. In Genesis 1 verse 1, we read, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is great news. It's kind of that, way to go, God. Let's get this party started. One of the things I love about the Christian faith is that it starts with creation. In the very next verse, Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. What is the very first thing that God does? God says in the next verse, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. Light and darkness can often be seen as combatants struggling for control of this world. Listen to this. There are 60 verses in Scripture where in the same verse it talks about 
the battle between darkness and light. Jumping from the very first chapter of Scripture all the way to the very last chapter, we arrive in Revelation 22, verse 5, with these words. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. Creation starts with the separation of light and darkness. And when God creates the new heavens and the new earth, darkness is completely stomped out. It's over. It's done. It's destroyed. Maybe you've read books, played games, watched movies, and things have started to change over the last 10 to 15 years. It's not so evident all the time as who the good guy is and who the bad guy is. These authors and these script writers are starting to engage with you a little bit until you begin thinking, oh, it's not the bad guy's fault that he's this way. Did you see the home he grew up in? Or the bad guy gives a speech in the middle or at the end of the movie and you think, you know what? That's not such a bad philosophy. Or the good guy starts getting a little too annoying and you think maybe the bad guy should win and beat him up. But this is not the case with God. We read in 1 John 1 verse 5 that God is light. In him there is no darkness whatsoever. There's no darkness in God. But that doesn't stop darkness from spreading across the land. Before we read Isaiah chapter 9, let me set the scene. The book of Isaiah is written about 700 years before the birth of Jesus. As we open up chapter 9, the king of Israel, a man by the name of Ahaz, has made some terrible nations uh, decisions and plunged the nation into despair. Over and over and over again, Ahaz has refused the instructions and the testimonies of God. Instead, he's depended on his own counsel his own wisdom, his own intelligence, his own friends, which has only led the nation further and further into darkness. Refusing to obey the law of Moses, refusing to listen to the prophets or any godly advisors, God is left with no choice but to send in an invading army and start taking captive some of the tribes of Israel. The context is incredible. Two of the tribes, two of the northern tribes, Zebulun and Naphtali, have suffered the invasion of the Assyrian army, and the nation has descended into darkness. The people are terrified that they're going to be taken from their home, separated from their family, pulled away from God, and taken to a foreign land, or worse. Where is there any hope when you face this kind of superpower? Where is there any hope when this nation can just come upon you and not just overrun a northern tribe, but actually take over those people of Israel? Imagine being part of the Israelite army and you're standing on guard and that's one of those cities in Zebulun or Naphtali. And for the most part, it's fairly a boring job. And you see over the crest of the hill, a couple hundred people starting to come towards you and you think to yourself, not a big deal. A couple hundred, we can take them no problem. And then those couple hundred swell into a few thousand and you start to think, this is going to be tough. And then the few thousand doesn't stop. And it looks like this horde of an army is coming towards you and you start quaking in fear. We are not going to be able to defend this place. Maybe you're not on the wall. Maybe you're at home and a neighbor comes pounding on the door and you run out to the door and you get to it and he says to you, did you hear? 
The Assyrians have come. We do not stand a chance. Maybe you're not in one of those two northern tribes. Maybe you're beside. And a scout from Naphtali comes, and quickly this rumor spreads across your tribe like wildfire. The two northern tribes have been taken into captivity. Darkness is coming across the land. The nation cannot hide from Ahaz's immorality. God is angry that his laws are being ignored, that false idols are worshipped instead of him, and the darkness is hitting the land. The reality is eventually our immorality will catch up to us. Whether it's out in the open for everybody to see like it is with King Ahaz, or whether it's something private and you hope that nobody looks at the skeletons in your closet. The problem is nothing is hidden from God's sight. God is the one who shines light in the darkest corners of the recesses of our hearts and our minds and our souls. You might think to yourself, nobody knows about my addiction to pornography. I have hidden this incredibly well, and maybe you have. But God knows what you're doing. The way you're treating your spouse, he or she knows what's going on. Something isn't quite right. Maybe you can't get into relationships because nobody is perfect because they don't match the image on that screen. Well, I certainly would wish job loss on nobody. Maybe the fact that you've lost your job is recognizing what kind of idols are in your life. You don't get the bonuses anymore. You don't get the raises anymore. You can't work overtime whenever you want in case something goes bad. And you recognize the irritability that is because you relied on that money. That money is what made you important. That money could buy you what you want. That money made you look better than your neighbor. Maybe spending more time with your family than you're used to isn't a good thing. And your spouse and your kids are looking at you and going, what is wrong with you? Why do you act the way you do? Why are you angry all the time? None of these are surprises to God. It's time to bring them out of darkness and into the light. For some of us, the darkness isn't about sin. It's about that feeling of utter hopelessness. Can you imagine what the Israelites must have felt after the Assyrian invasion? What are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to stand against that incredible superpower? When is this ever going to end? Maybe that's how some of you feel about COVID right now. For those of you in the medical community, you might be thinking, I wish the province would just shut down. I wish the nation would just shut down. Do people realize how tired we are? It's not just that we're working hard. We can do that for a period of time, but we don't know when this is going to end. You feel exhausted. You're worried. How long can I keep doing this and stay safe or keep my family safe? You recognize economic disaster is looming. Small business owners have said, we can't survive another shutdown. We're going to be closing businesses all over the place, and we're going to have to lay off all of our staff. Even if you don't own a small business, you look at our nation's national debt and you think it's grown by one-third over the last six months. How long can this sustain itself? And what are the taxes and ramifications that are coming down the road? And the darkness starts to settle in. Perhaps it's not the medical professionals or the economy you're concerned about. You're looking around and whether it's yourself personally or close friends, you're going, this mental health thing it's rough. 
This past week, I read articles both of the scholarly nature and biographical nature because over the last couple of weeks, I have had friends, I've had family members, I've had people say to me, this mental health stuff is killing us inside. The depression, the anxiety. I know somebody who recently tried to commit suicide and you think, when is this going to end? As darkness grabs a foothold and just won't seem to let us go. It's in that depth of darkness that we realize a light has dawned. As we read together, listen to the confidence in which Isaiah speaks these words. This is Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke the burdens that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle, every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. You can't cancel light. In the depth of darkness, a new light has dawned. Before I read, that, read this passage, I asked you to listen to the confidence in these seven verses. While these verses are often read at Christmas, let me remi remind you for a second time this morning, they were written 700 years before Jesus was born. Isaiah is not reminding his audience of something that has taken place. He's telling them, this is the good news. This is going to happen in the future. And he's telling them with such confidence and such conviction, you cannot be help but be filled with hope. These verses are called a prophetic perfect. Meaning, while the event hasn't happened, Isaiah is so convinced it will happen, it's as though it has already taken place. It's awesome. While surrounded by darkness, deeply aware of the tragedy that's all around him, Isaiah is inviting us to live in the future. A king is coming. A child is born the government will rest on his shoulders and he will be the Prince of Peace, the Everlasting Father, wonderful counselor, mighty God, love and wisdom will reign. God is coming to earth. The light has dawned. What makes this so remarkable is that Isaiah is sharing this in arguably the worst time in Israel's history. Abraham was told that he would be the father of a new nation. 
Eventually, Israel moves into Egypt, which seems good until they are made slaves by the Egyptians. Then Moses takes them out and walks them through the promise, uh, through the desert. Joshua takes them into the promised land. They eventually take over good chunks of Canaan. The kings are greatly successful. And now they're not. And captivity awaits. But here's what's so amazing about God. While we're, used, while we're used to working on contract, God is talking about covenant. The contract says, I do some work for you, you pay me. I fix your furnace, you give me 500 bucks. That's the contract. I don't do the work, I don't get paid. But a covenant is different. A covenant says, I promise to fix your furnace, you promise to give me 500 bucks. And even if you don't give me the money, I'm still gonna fix your furnace and I'm not gonna hold you accountable for that. God and Israel have made a covenant. God has promised Israel, you will be my people. And Israel says, we will be your people and we will worship you alone and have no other idols besides you. But not only does Israel stop worshiping God, they actually start worshiping false idols. Not only do they disregard God's law, they start living by their own rules. And God gave them plenty of time to change their ways. He sent them prophets, he sent them priests, and over and over the kings of Israel said, eh, not interested. This isn't just during the life of King Ahaz. This has been going on for 200 years where generation after generation of Israelite kings are saying, we're not going to listen. We are not going to obey God's law. We're not going to worship him. We're just going to do our own thing. Nothing will happen. We're his children of promise. So God has no choice but to send in a superpower to take them captive. But when all seems lost, out of this depth of darkness with already two tribes of Israel being taken into captivity, a light has dawned because you can't cancel light. No other religion has God coming to earth. This time, God isn't going to raise up a great leader from among Israel. He is going to become the great leader for Israel. God is sending his own son, the fullness of God, to take on human flesh and break into history. Despite the fact that Israel has chosen to reject God, he still chooses to give them light because that is the promise he made to Israel. In the midst of darkness, God shines in his bright and brilliant light to show Israel his power, that one day a child will be born, one day a political leader will come who will bring an end to all wars and build a kingdom of righteousness. A time will come when he takes his nation out of darkness and into a glorious light. No longer will it be a small remnant of people. But a group, a tribe, a nation without borders, swelling in number. Instead of harvest being meager, they will be abundant in hope. They will, have, they will no longer be captives of war, but will reap in the spoils. Instead of prisoners of darkness, they will be captivated by light. Some awfully good news. In the depth of darkness... A light has dawned. But imagine being one of those tribes of Israel that is right next to Zebulun and Naphtali. Imagine that scout showing up at your house and saying, the northern tribes have fallen. 
be aware, be ready. Something bad is happening. What do you do? How do you respond? Are you going to be next? How do you comfort your family? Incredibly uncertain times. Who knows what's going to happen next? But maybe it's not that hard to imagine. Yeah, we probably aren't going to have a neighboring nation come in and take us captive. But are you saying to yourself, how do I comfort my family in this time? What do I say to my spouse? What do I say to my children? What do I say when I can't put food on the table? What do I say when there's no more money in the bank and rent is due in just a few weeks? What do I say when my kids really have been good and there's no presents under the Christmas tree? What do I say when I can't spend time with friends and family members that we look forward to every year? There's a question the Israelites are asking. It's a question many of us might be asking. God, how do I know I can trust you? God gives us the answer right in this text. In verse four, he says, because I've done it before. Now, if you have verse four in front of you, it literally doesn't say that, but it absolutely says it. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, what does that mean? The story of Midian's defeat can actually be found in Judges chapter seven, and it's an absolutely incredible story. The neighboring nation of Midian has made Israel's life absolutely awful. For seven years, the people of Midian have been raiding the Israelite farms and uh, ruining their crops. They have destroyed or stolen all of their livestock, and Israel is so afraid of their neighbors that they have actually moved away from the land and into caves. And they cry out to God, God, send us somebody to rescue us. This is not the promised land we were expecting. And so God raises up a man by the name of Gideon. And Gideon, through all the 12 tribes of Israel, is able to get 32,000 men together. And he says, with these 32,000 men, we are going to attack the Midianites. And this army of Israel is walking towards Midian. And on the morning that they are supposed to attack, God says, you know what? It's too many people. Tell them anyone who's afraid, anyone who doesn't want to be here, they can go home. So Gideon makes that offer. 22,000 people get up and leave. 10,000 remain. So Gideon's thinking, wow, I just lost two-thirds of my army, but okay, so 10,000 people will go and we'll fight Midian. And God says, mm, not so quick. There's still way too many people here. You might think you've done it on your own when I'm the one who's fighting for you. Gideon, you see that body of water over there? Take all 10,000 of your army and go over to that place. Anybody who gets on their knees and cups the water to their hand, they can go home. Anybody who lies on their stomach and laps it up like a dog, that will be your army. Gideon must have been thinking, is he crazy? Of the 10,000 people remaining, 9,700 people drink water normally, and 300 people who are a little bit socially awkward lie down and lap it up like a dog. And God says, with these socially awkward folk, let's go into Midian and show them why they shouldn't mess with Israel. And God, with an army of only 300 people, defeats a nation that has been bothering Israel for seven years. Here's what we need to remember. 
If God can defeat a nation with only 300 people, can you trust him to uphold his promise? You can't cancel light. Remember what it is that God has done. In the depth of darkness, a light has dawned for the hope of the world. I love the title of our Advent series this year, Can't Cancel Christmas, but it sure feels canceled, doesn't it? On the week that we start this brand new Christmas series, Pastor Mel stands up and he says, church family, I've got some really difficult news to share. For the month of December, we will not be having any services on site. Our province declared that from now until the third week of December, there are no indoor social gatherings allowed. I was told by a friend of mine who has a number of friends um, who are cops that cops are driving around the city, some of them excited to hand out tickets, some of them sick to their stomach. Personally, I love Christmas, but this year there's no parties, there's no decorations, and for the first time in my life, I might not see my family. But we need to be reminded, Christmas isn't canceled. A light has dawned for the hope of the world that can never be taken away. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. We have been given a gift from heaven and it can never be taken back. God, in the depth of his love for us, sent his one and only son to bring us out of darkness and into his glorious light. You might be aware that monarchs in the ancient Near East were often thought of as gods and would have titles that greatly exaggerated um, adulation from their subjects. What you might not be aware of is that the greatest day of adulation was on the day they were enthroned. A significant amount of work was done by the religious priests of Egypt, of Babylon, and Assyria, as well as others, to come up with the right names and endorsements for their new king or queen. In fact, it was expected that each Egyptian monarch be given five divine titles on the day of his enthronement. Names like the mighty bull of Thebes, she of divine appearance and wisdom, child of light, were the absolute norm 3,000 years ago. But Isaiah is writing to the Israelites, not to all the Mesopotamians. And Hebrew prophecy is founded on truth, not flattery. The Israelites never believed that there was an actual king sitting on the throne, but rather that their king was a representative of God. Until this moment, a light has dawned. The hope of the world has arrived. God is coming to earth. This king would receive four names, not five, immediately setting him apart from the counterparts. The first two names show his divine wisdom and power. The second two names, what he will do with that wisdom and power. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, Unlike Ahaz, the current king of Israel, the future king will implement supernatural wisdom in the leadership of his people. 
Stories were almost certainly told of Solomon, the third king of Israel, and his incredible wisdom. But this wisdom was given to Solomon from God. This time, God himself is coming down from heaven to earth. In the opening chapter of Mark's gospel, the author points out in chapter 122, the people were amazed at his teaching because Jesus taught them as one who had authority, not just as teachers of the law. But it won't just be his wisdom that impresses impresses the nation. God himself will come and fight for us with power never seen before. Strength of such magnitude that he will be able to absorb all the evil, all the darkness, all the sin of the world that's thrown at him. And he will conquer both sin and death. As far as military exploits, he will not just lead us to victory, but that he will put an end to all wars. Where soldiers once held swords and shields, they will remold them into useful tools to work the harvest fields. What will be accomplished with this wisdom and power? An everlasting father and prince of peace. A king who sits on the throne as the protector and the provider of his people. A father who sacrifices for his nation to do what is best for them. We get to call him father. Not just because of what he has done for us, but because he has adopted us as his sons and daughters. And made us heirs of the greatest kingdom. There will be no more tears or trials or troubles or pain. Not only will God bring peace, but he comes in peace. This isn't Zeus from Greek mythology with lightning bolts in his fists. This is God taking on flesh in the form of a helpless babe, born of a virgin, far from home, in a place not his own. This is no destruction of an entire army, but transparent vulnerability. As great as some of Israel's kings are, none of them are divine. The child will stand alone as the greatest in David's line. The promise that was made to Abraham in the opening chapters of scriptures is coming to pass. Israel will be a blessing to all the peoples of the earth. And a child born of a virgin will be the king of kings and lord of lords. You can't cancel Christmas can't cancel light for a light has dawned and brings the hope to the world. Reflecting on the Christmas story, Timothy Keller writes these words. Look at what was happening at the time of the birth of Jesus. Violence, injustice, abuse of power, homelessness, refugees fleeing oppression, families ripped apart, and bottomless grief. Sounds exactly like today. I don't, I don't know what you're going through right now. I sincerely hope it's the most wonderful time of the year for you and your family and you're able to make the best out of a rough situation. However, for most of us, it's really hard. We're concerned about our physical health and our mental health. We're concerned about our finances. We're concerned about our friends and our family. We're concerned, when will life ever get back to normal again? sounds an awful lot like what Isaiah was writing to in the people of Israel. The reality of Christmas is that things aren't that good right now. But there is incredible news. The light has dawned and brought hope to the world.
speaking about himself in John chapter 8, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Isaiah's original audience was in despair in the depth of darkness. And man, do I love this term. He writes the prophetic perfect. Brothers and sisters, those of you who belong to the family of God, to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Mighty will accomplish this. And even though the Israelites weren't living in it, they believed a better day was coming. My friends, even like the Israelites, if it feels like there is a depth of darkness all around us, remember, Jesus has come. Jesus is coming back. It's a prophetic perfect. We know this is taking place. A light has dawned and brought hope into the world because you can't cancel light and you can't cancel Christmas.